0: The world remembers back in 1993 when a very anti-government group manned by a very anti-government leader named David Koresh withstood a siege by the government of the United States for 51 days. The end of the siege, as you remember, was a day-long conflagration that ended in 85 people being killed, 17 of them at least being children. For some people, that was a threshold event. Some people looked at that and saw that the government is imposing upon their freedoms, and there have been videotapes and a lot of discussion about that scene in Waco. During a Bible session, it was reported by one of the um, spies, so to speak, that was in there, an agent who was trying to be like he was an initiate in the religion. David Koresh was tipped off that he was being surrounded by the ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms agents. And in a very dramatic way, he put his Bible, he threw it down on the ground, and everybody, he was a very melodramatic kind of a leader, charismatic kind of a leader, you know, threw his Bible on the ground, and he said, the kingdom of God. Then he said, neither the ATF team nor the National Guard will ever get me. They got me once, they'll never get me again. They're coming. The time has come. The kingdom of God. And so many of them were apocalyptic in their outlook, thinking this is the end of the world, this is our leader, the government is wrong, we must rebel, we must take up arms against them and rebel. Now, there's been a lot of talk lately, after the Oklahoma incident, and in lieu of what happened with David Koresh, a lot of talk about movements like that, militia movements, patriot movements, people who are arming themselves and saying, You know, we got to watch out for the government. We have to fight against them. Time magazine reported on the Patriot movement and the Michigan militia. They're probably the most talked about recently. And uh, they say, of course, that the government is repressive and we must fight against them. They're untrustworthy. The Time article said, quote, The men, speaking about the group that they came to, the men, civilians, all of them, see threats everywhere. There are reports of foreign soldiers hiding in salt mines under Detroit, some of the men say. Others speak of secret markings on highway signs meant to guide conquering armies. The men's voices subside as General Norman Olson, a Baptist minister, gun shop owner, militia leader, talk about multiple personality disorder, enters the tent. He tells the men they are the shock troops of a movement that is sweeping America. That the end times are coming and civil wars are now only two years away. Stories like that add up and there's a lot of notions going around that Christians in general, of course they're painting with a broom, but the Christians in general are by and large white supremist, anti-government, obsessed with guns kind of people. They're just really goners. You know, the enemy is the fundamentalist right-wing Christians. They all want to shoot people and uh, rise up against the government. So what is the Christian position supposed to be in the midst of a wicked society and an ungodly government? Fortunately, we're not left in the dark in the New Testament concerning the position of the believer. And so you must ask yourself tonight, are you a believer in the true New Testament sense of the word? If you are, you're about to hear from the scriptures your position to your government in your world. And they're right in front of us. Verse 1. Remind them. Stop there. Who's them? Well, chapter 2 speaks all about them. Old, young, male, female, slave, free. That's them. That covers just about everybody. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, Deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now back in chapter 1, verse 5, the whole tenet of the book is this. Titus, I'm leaving you on the island of Crete so that you might correct or set in order or supply what is lacking. In the church, set things in order and ordain elders or appoint them in every city. So to kind of give an overall bird's-eye view of the book, the Apostle Paul has been giving instructions to Titus, first of all, for Christian leaders in chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. This is what a Christian leader is supposed to be in this world. And this is what a Christian leader is supposed to be in light of all of the false leaders and false doctrine teachers that are going around even on the island of Crete. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, basically, actually the whole chapter, but speak about personal relationships and profiles of various people within the church. Now, Paul takes all of that, leaders and people, and it funnels now into verse 1 of chapter 3, Remind them. Now we have the responsibility of the Christian in society and in our culture. Those that we live around. First of all, this is who we are in the church. This is who we are in light of false doctrine. This is who we are now in light of the world and governments and the nations that are around us. So we come to the character and conduct as it relates to our witness before an ungodly world. You have two addresses. You have an earthly address, but you also have a heavenly address. You live on some street in some house or apartment or trailer. That's your earthly address, and that can change. You also have a heavenly address that is permanent that will never change. You are a citizen of heaven, Paul says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. While our citizenship is in heaven and we seek first the kingdom of God, we also have certain responsibilities while we live at this temporary address on planet earth. We have responsibility toward our fellow men. And so you could sum up these verses by, first of all, our present obligation, verses 1 and 2. And secondly, it's our present obligation based upon our previous condition, who we were before we came to Christ. This is your present obligation in the light of your previous condition. You were one of them. And then finally, based upon also our past salvation in Christ. All of it has to do with our responsibility before a non world. So let's look at verse 1 and 2, and probably, uh, knowing the way we do things around here, we'll cover verses 1 and 2, and then we'll go for the rest of it next time. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. That's our responsibility. That's our attitude and our actions. To governing authorities. That's verse 1. Then our actions and our attitudes toward the rest of unsaved men and women. In verse 2, to speak evil of no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing humility to all men. That's our present obligation. When I was a teenager, I was pretty rebellious. And um, if you've been around a while, you've heard some of my previous stories. It's not a shock to you, but perhaps some of you have come and you see, Boy, this is a... Pastor, I mean, he probably lived a spotless life. Far from it. I was a rebellious teenager. When I, um, before I had a car, I had a motorcycle, and it was a very loud motorcycle. And it was chopped, and it had a big tank with flames on it. It made a lot of noise. You know, little has changed, right? And uh, I would go up and down my streets. And I lived down the street from two CHPs, California Highway Patrols. They were both brothers. They're both believers today. And I saw them recently at my father's funeral and we were reminiscing about these days. And so it's great to have reconciliation after all these years. (laughs) But boy, during that time, we had anything but reconciliation because, you know, I'd wait till they were asleep and I'd just gas it and wake them up and they would chase us around and they would ticket us and warn us and poke their fingers in our chests, And I got to despise authorities. What right do they have? They're always speeding. (laughs) I remember when I was 15 years old and my friend borrowed his mom's car. Uh, That was our term for what it really meant is he stole his mom's car. And we were driving down to Los Angeles and I said, listen, I want to drive. I've got a learner's permit. So I'm driving. This is my first time on the freeways of Southern California. And I don't know if you can imagine this, but I was stopped by a policeman for impeding traffic. <laughs> they don't have a lot like that around here because it seems like everybody does it. But out there, if you go too slow, they give you a ticket. And I said, officer, I was going the speed limit, but he said, you were in the left lane and there's a thing called flow of traffic and you're slowing everybody down. And he said, how old are you? And I lied. He said, do you have a license? I said, oh, I left it at home. And he looked at me and he said, let me tell you something, young man. I'm going to check your name and I'm going to see if you have a driver's license. And if you do not have a driver's license, you're not going to get one for a long time. And I looked at him straight face and I said, go for it. You'll find that I have one. And then, of course, I thought, you know, I'm sunk. I'm never going to get one. I'm going to walk the rest of my life or take the 10-speed around California. (laughs) I guess he never checked because I never heard from him again. He must have thought, well, it's convincing. He looked convincing. Later on, as I hung around some unsavory characters, I got involved and I got in trouble with the law. And there was a time where I was sitting in jail as a teenager. And I rationalized my behavior, and I thought, you know what? What I did was enjoyable to me. I got a thrill out of it. And God wants people to be happy, and I was happy, thus I'm in the will of God. (laughs) That's how warped an ungodly, wicked teenager can be. I was one, I know. Now, I've come to a place in my life, by the grace of God, where I do not want to rebel against society. I want to show them respect, that I might win them to Christ. I want the opportunity to evangelize them. That doesn't mean I'm flawless. Listen, I get pulled over, still. (laughs) A couple years ago, a few years ago now, I was stopped in Arizona. It was an open road. I was on the motorcycle, making loud noise again. And I just, you know, opened it up to see what this thing can do. It had a great. It just felt so great. I felt great until I heard, you know, behind me, the siren. And you know, he puts his speaker on. You know, the speaker comes on, and I pull over. And the policeman is livid. Do you know how fast you were going? And. Uh, I said, you hey, know, I'm not, I'm not going to lie at this point. I'm, yes, I do, and I knew I'm breaking the law. And then so he says, I'm going to write you a ticket. I said, I deserve a ticket. And he said, What do you do for a living? I was so embarrassed. So I told him, I'm a teacher. Where are you a teacher? (laughs) Albuquerque. (laughs) And he said, he looked at me and said, Give me the name of the place where you work. That was part of the ticket he had to write down. I said, Cover jumble. What is that again? and it was such an embarrassing position because i knew i had broken the law and it was it was like i was dragging god down to a lower level and i did not savor that um, experience the scripture teaches us that we are to be responsible citizens law abiding citizens exemplary citizens while we have the citizenship on earth, to better exemplify our citizenship in heaven. Yet, there have always been Christians, there have always been people within the church who have surfaced and have believed that we should revolt against the government in every generation. I was reading some church history during the Reformation period when Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, we bringing a great work of revival and restoration, going back to the scripture. There was a group of people during that time, they were known as the Anabaptists, who started out, you know, okay at first, but then they got sort of militant and sort of radical. Luther sought to cleanse the church from all tradition and get back to the Bible, and Zwingli much the same way to rely upon not just your experience, but upon the teaching of the Word of God, period, and to rid the church of its hierarchical nonsense. The group called the Anabaptists noticed that Lutherans, and Zwingli were gaining sort of popularity among the aristocracy and even the princes. This was after a period of years, of course. At first they were not. They were in direct conflict with the Roman Catholic Church. The Anabaptists believed that you guys aren't going far enough. You're not going far enough. Because we notice in the New Testament they said that there was a great difference between the church and the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire also persecuted the church. And if you're really obedient to Christ, you have to carry the Reformation to a higher level so that they persecute you. The state has to persecute you. They're the enemy of the church. Of course... Of course, Lutherans and Zwingli didn't want that. We want to be responsible citizens of the kingdom of God while we live within the kingdom of men. But there was a group in Zurich, Switzerland, known as Brethren at first, who said, we must have a radical reformation. And they sort of had started their own church. Two leaders emerged, Thomas Munzer and Melchior Hoffman, who announced, listen to this, the day of the Lord is near, the day of the Lord is near. Multitudes flocked to Strasbourg, Germany, in hopes that they would discover the New Jerusalem there. They went to Strasbourg and they said, this don't look like the New Jerusalem. And so later on, they said the New Jerusalem will be over in this town, not far from Strasbourg. They increasingly became anti-militant, and Lutherans, and Zwingli separated themselves from this group. And this group said, these two men said, it is necessary for the children of God to take up arms against the children of darkness to bring in the second coming. Very Koresh-like. Now every now and then I get mail. And it's interesting mail. It's conspiratorial mail. There's a conspiracy going on. The government's hiding things from us. There are troops amassed in the state of New Mexico. They're ready to pounce on us. We need to store food in the caves nearby. and there's documentation, documentation. And, and I'm thinking, why do they send it to me? And they send it to me because they want my voice from this pulpit and over the radio. You've got to warn people. You have got to warn the church. I'm thinking, listen, if the church is reading the Bible, they already know that in the last days an antichrist and a satanic new world order is coming. this is not new news. Well, could usher in the antichrist? It's going to come. It's going to happen. I'm looking for Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. But always a conspiracy. Our actions and our attitudes toward the government in verse 1 is that we should remember to be subject to rulers and authorities. That's first. Secondly, to obey. And then finally, to be ready for every good work. When Paul wrote this, the Christians in the Roman Empire were already looked upon as sort of being goofy and suspect by the government anyway. They met in their own meetings. They didn't participate in the Roman feasts of Bacchanalia or Saturnalia. Uh, They met and they loved one another. They refused to bow down before the gods of Rome. They refused to put a pinch of incense and say that Caesar is Lord. They instead said, Jesus is Lord. And so already the church was looked upon as being a subversive kind of anti-government group. And so Paul made sure that while the Christian lives in the Roman Empire, they're not to be lawbreakers like the pagans, but to be subject to governing authorities. Now, look at your own nation. Your nation perhaps once was a Christian nation, but it is not a Christian nation. The Christian influence is so... Degenerated and disintegrated, that we have vestiges of it in a post-Christian era. Yet, Titus 3 and Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and other scriptures that we hope to look at tonight still stand. The idea here, it doesn't matter if Caesar Nero is in charge, and he was, and he killed lots of Christians. If Pilate, or if it's Herod, or if it's Winston Churchill, or if it's Bill Clinton... Be subject, as it says, to rulers and authorities and get ready to obey. Now the word to be subject means to submit or subject yourself. Let me tell you what the word is. It's the Greek word hupotasso, and it's a military term. It's a military term. It means to rank underneath a military leader or to arrange troops in a military fashion under the direction of a leader. That's the military term. It was carried over into the normal secular Greek usage, and it came to mean this, and this is probably more accurate. A voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. That's subjection or submission. Now, submission is not a foreign concept to a Christian. Rebellion is a foreign concept to a Christian. In fact, if we just trace the seed of thought in this book, look at at a few of them. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant. Boy, that speaks of subjection, doesn't it? That's a voluntarily subjection to God himself, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. It says... He has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. In other words, I'm living as a slave under the command of my leader. That's subjection. Then look over at verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. That implies spiritual leadership so that the church would be in subjection to the example and the authority of those elders. Then look over at verse 10. For there are many insubordinate; It's the opposite now of following authority. Insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those in the circumcision. Down to chapter 2, verse 5. Talking that the older women should admonish the younger women to be discreet. Verse 5. Chaste homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So, subjection within the home. Then down in verse 9. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their master. So in society, the employer-employee relationship, or here the slave and master relationship. And now he speaks to the government. To the issue of the Christian and the government. What kind of government existed when he wrote this? Was it a democracy? Do you think they could go in and vote? Or they could call their senator like we have the opportunity today? We have the opportunity to get involved, and I think we should get involved. They didn't have a voice. They had massive, intense persecution. They had a very despotic ruler named Caesar Nero and other Caesars that sat upon the throne, Diocletian, Domitian, and others that sought to obliterate the church and set up policies, moral policies, that were against the moral policies of the church. Now I want you to stop here and go left to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, and let's look at an instance of Jesus Christ confronting the issue of governmental authority. Matthew chapter 22. In this chapter, there's a couple of interesting groups who hate each other, but now they're with each other, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees were very pro-Jewish because they were Jewish. The Herodians were Jewish, but they were very pro-Roman government because they got their money from them, the Herod dynasty. Now, though they didn't like each other, they were trying to trap Jesus to find out where he stood on a government policy of paying taxes. Now, it's a catch-22. To the Pharisees, if he did not rebel against Caesar, in their view, he was against God and God's plan for God's people. If he said, forget the Roman government... The zealots, the Pharisees would go, yeah, right on, dude. But the Herodians would say, he's against the government. He's subversive. He needs to be put away. Okay, in verse 15, and by the way, and probably every time in every culture and among every group of people, some of the greatest disagreements come between the religious people and the government, or at least the people in the government. And it seems that Jesus could stay clear of all this because Jesus had a passion. You got to understand this is fundamental. Jesus had a passion to save people. Keeping that in mind, verse 15, the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent him to their disciples with the Herodians saying, teacher. We know that you are true and teach the way of God and truth. Nor do you care about anyone. For you do not regard the person of men. They are buttering him up. Trying to make him feel good. Well, they don't, that did not work with him. They're trying to, with the wrong person. Therefore, tell us. What do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they probably sat back and go, here it goes. But Jesus perceived their wickedness. And he said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So he brought him a denarius, it's a day's wage. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Now right there, there was a problem for the Jews, because to bear the image of anything or anyone... On a daily basis like this, an inscription was considered to be idolatrous. You may remember that Pilate had a real problem in an uprising of the Jews when he had banners made with the inscription of Caesar on it. All the Jews rebelled. They said, get this out of our city. This is idolatry because of the second commandment. So it was idolatry. They didn't want to pay taxes. the, The Roman government was using their money to sponsor pagan programs and the worship of pagan gods. They didn't want to pay that tax. It was idolatry to them. So they said, well, whose mug is on it? Whose image? Whose inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him, and they went their way. Now, Jesus paid the tax. He told Peter at one time, go down, go fishing. Get a fish, first fish, open his mouth, there'll be enough money to pay the tax. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Handy guy to have around to come tax him. But he said, pay the tax. Even though the tax was to the Jews a form of idolatry, even though the tax money was being used for things that did not please Jesus Christ because he had a passion for souls and he steered clear of this whole debate by saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, you've got to also know that there were a group of Jews called Zealots. You've all heard of them. One of them was on Jesus' disciple team. Now, the Zealots were anti-government. They thought you shouldn't pay taxes. In fact, they were a terrorist organization who believed you should bear arms against the government and overthrow them if you can Jesus was not a part of that group. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, there are Christians who somehow expect the government to be the church's ally or even partner. And so they'll wrap the Bible in the local flag as if they're one and the same. We're going to find out that the state of the government has absolutely nothing to do with the state of the church or the spread of the gospel. It absolutely has nothing to do with it. Let me put it real bluntly. Does it matter if a person goes to hell as a Democrat or a Republican, as a prostitute or a policeman? What matters is the eternal state of the soul, not what party they belong to. Now, I know that on this side of heaven there are issues, and I'm very for certain issues and for certain programs. And I want to get involved where I can. But mostly I want to get involved in changing a soul for eternity that they might be in God's heaven. And the idea of our relationship to the government is that we live in such a way that it would not impede our evangelism among the people of this world. That's the whole idea, is that it will not impede our way to spread another kingdom in the midst of whatever kingdom you have to be in, if you happen to be in Iraq or in America or China or Mexico, that the kingdom of God may be spread. Let's turn to another passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 13. The classic chapter on it, It's perhaps the longest treatise on this issue, and it's kind of detailed. We won't get into all of it. We've done it on previous occasions, but it does bear perusing. Verse 1, chapter 13. Let every soul, I guess that would be us, be subject to the governing authorities. Again, wicked governments were intact when he wrote these words. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. I know that is a tough pill to swallow. But you know what? In the sovereignty of God, there are no exceptions. He wrote this in view of Herod. He wrote this in view of Pilate. He wrote this in view of Domitian. He wrote this in view of Diocletian. He wrote this in view of Nero. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinances of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. Now this is, of course, there are exceptions, but generally the idea is that governments are put in place to stop the excessiveness of wickedness. Rulers are not a terror to good works but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good. Now, I needed to hear that when I was running all those red lights and revving up my motorcycle as a kid and sitting in that jail cell. You want to not be afraid? You want to not white-knuckle the steering wheel when you see a policeman? Do what is good. And you will have praise from the same. For he, that is the ruler, is God's minister. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought of the policeman that is giving you the ticket? is God's minister. I know that stuff. To you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. The idea, by the way, of sword is the execution and capital punishment. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers. That's the IRS. Attending continually to this very thing. They got that right. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honor is due. By the way, the taxes in those times were far more excessive than any taxes we pay in this country today. Turn now to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. By the way, that doesn't mean that you can't raise your voice in opposition to taxes because the government here is set up to be governed by the people. You have a voice, right? But once the tax has been set, then pay it. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 13, Therefore, and we're not going to read all that came before the therefore. You can do that on another occasion. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of the man for the Lord's sake. Now we get the purpose. Whether to the king supreme or to the governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. So, nobody likes policemen behind them with their little red lights on, or the little speaker. Nobody likes that tax bill when it comes due. Nobody likes to find out that they didn't pay enough this year and they've got to pay more. Nobody likes to find out that the new tax bill means that you have to pay more than you thought you had to pay and double next year. But, we have to pay taxes. And unfortunately, many cheat. It's called tax fraud. You know, the IRS did something a few years ago. They investigated what people should have paid and what people did pay, and you know what the the difference was? Ninety three billion dollars through tax fraud. All right, now Jesus was careful to always point out the difference between himself and his followers and That group and all of the other groups following any other cause like the Zealots or like the Herodians. Listen to what he said to Pilate in this sweeping statement. He stands before Pilate. Pilate says, Are you a king? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. And at the end of the thing, Pilate says to the Jews, I find no basis of charge regarding this man. In other words, this guy has broken no laws of the government that would deserve what you say is deserved, and that is crucifixion. Because Jesus wasn't obsessed with an agenda. He was obsessed with the saving of a soul. It was always in his mind at all times. So we are to be model citizens, evangelizing and spreading the kingdom of God. Now, at the same time, there are times when the Christian must disobey the government. Now, I'm not going to say, go get your guns and come here and we'll lock ourselves up next Thursday night. But there are times, to put it in Peter's words, where we must obey God rather than men. And that is when the government asks you to do something that is clearly against the Bible or forbids you to do something that is clearly told you to do in the Bible. You must not do what they say. If the government says, you can never go to church. You can never tell people about Jesus. Well, Jesus told me to tell them about Jesus. Jesus told me to fellowship. There's an instance of this, and it's familiar to some of us. Some of us, it's not. I want you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4. We're going to look at two brief passages in Acts, chapter 4 and chapter 5 to see an instance and then glean the principle for our own lives. In Acts, chapter 4, verse 16, The leadership in a quandary says, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident. To all who dwell in Jerusalem, we can't deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. That from now on they speak to no man in this name. What that is tantamount to is a law being passed, Thou shalt not evangelize. It was legal. They had jurisdiction over that part of Jerusalem. And so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now go to the very next chapter. In chapter 5, the persecution continues. Where's the verse I'm looking for? Seventeen twenty-nine. Yes, all right. Instead of going all the way back to 17, that's where it begins. 28, that's it. They brought it before the council saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name and look you have filled jerusalem with your doctrine not only have you broken the law you've broken it excessively you filled jerusalem oh would to god that we would fill this city with the doctrine of jesus christ would to god that we would fill this country oh but we've got a cause oh but we've got an agenda fill the city with jesus christ You intend to bring this man's blood on us? Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought or we must literally obey God rather than men. Now, often we can function within the parameters set by the government, and sometimes we can't, and when we can't, we don't. A classic example of this was the attitude of Athanasius, fourth century martyr and theologian and athanasius was confronted with a guy by the name of arius who was sort of like the first jehovah witness in history arius said jesus is not divine he is not god in human flesh there's no such thing as the trinity at a council at a confrontation between arius and athanasius one of athanasius buddies came to him and said man everybody's against you here Athanasius, The world, it seems, is against you. And Athanasius said that classic sentence. He said, if the world goes against the truth, then Athanasius will go against the world. And there's times to do that. And the time is is when the world imposes something that would cause you to act in a very unbiblical way. Now, another example of this, I think, and we won't turn to it, is Daniel. Remember the first chapter? Daniel's a kid. He's in Babylon. And he goes along with the mandate. They want him to be educated, right? And so he gets educated in all the pagan stuff. They want him to change his name from a Hebrew name to a pagan name. He does it. And he goes along up to the point when they say, we want you to eat the king's food. It's the best food you can get. It's the king's diet. And he refused to do it, right? Right? Why did he refuse to do that? Because that was the only thing in the Word of God specifically he was told to obey. The Bible never said anything about what name you're called by or what you are educated in, but the Bible did say that the Jew has a kosher diet, and so he drew the line. It was in the Word of God, and he said, "Uh uh-uh. But he did it in a very gracious manner. He didn't say, now listen up here, you pagan. He said, if it pleased the king... Very gracious. If it pleased the king, set before me a very meager diet of water and vegetables. And then compare me at the end of days to all of the people that you're feeding this slop to. I mean this, fine food to. And so he obeyed and then he disobeyed. Of course, the other example also found in the book of Daniel is chapter 6. When a law is passed that you can't pray to any other God except the God of the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel finds out about it. It's all a jealous procedure that happens from the co-workers of Daniel. Daniel finds out about it. He opens his windows toward Jerusalem three times a day, bows himself down, and he prays in plain sight. Now, he had a lot of options. He could have thought, well, this is only for 30 days. Um, I can wait for 30 days. I can take a vacation from God. I can leave my Bible around for a month somewhere else and not pray. And then I'll be holy after that. Or he could have said... Well, I'll pray behind the palace, out in the fields. Take a long walk out where the cows are. That's where I'll pray. Nobody will see me. I don't want to be ostentatious. He opens his windows. You say, what, is he trying to be ostentatious? Is he trying to rub his righteousness in their nose? No. The Bible says he did it as was his custom. Here's the idea. He did it as a kid. He did it in his middle age. Now he's about 90 years old, and he's not going to change his convictions now for any government. And the death sentence was passed. The lion's den for Daniel, of course you know, that he was delivered by God. It's better to die for a conviction than to live with a compromise. There's times to disobey. But, again, the premise. The status of the government has nothing to do with the forward movement of the kingdom of God within a society. That is fundamental. Case in point, China. You know, for a long time, for a hundred years, Western missionaries flooded China. At the end of a hundred years, when the communists came in, around 1940, they counted up the converts. About 800,000 people had become Christians in that hundred years of missionary activity from the West. In the 1940s, the Christians were kicked out. The Christian missionaries were kicked out. The Christians within China, the indigenous people, were forced underground about 40 years later When it opened up again, the church was with bated breath waiting to see what happened to this church, this persecuted church. This horrifying thing happened. Christianity is outlawed. The church has gone underground. Are there any survivors? Is anyone left in China? And so they went in and they examined this church that did not have any of the resources we have. They didn't have Christian radio, they didn't have Christian bookstores. Most of them didn't have Bibles. They certainly didn't have church growth seminars. You know what they found? Fifty, conservatively, to some counts, a hundred million people during that 40 years had become Christians. In the most oppressive and ungodly government, it spread greater. So it matters to no degree. That's why Vance Havner said, We are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by combustion within the lives ignited by the Holy Spirit of God. Not by knocking it, not by conforming to it, but by being different enough in it as salt and light. And so our time is up, and we conclude with our verse. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. The idea is cooperating in activities that include the whole community. Be a model citizen. Our citizenship is in heaven, but we also have a citizenship on earth. And, uh, of course, I have more to say about verse 2. Regarding our actions and activities toward all men, which is sort of implicit in verse 2, and so next time when we're together, not next week because it's communion, we'll talk about these things and tie them all together. Our obligation in view of our past condition as rotten heathen people, and then our conversion in view of who we were and what Jesus has done. That sort of sums up what we are to be in this world in terms of an oppressive government and a wicked culture. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that your scripture, your word is very, very clear and very, very relevant to absolutely everything we would face. And Lord, we're so thankful that you inspired the Apostle Paul through your Holy Spirit to write to young Titus on that island of Crete, not knowing that these words would be resounded throughout the entire globe, giving us a model for our behavior. Lord, I pray that we would come to a balance And that for the sake of the kingdom of God, which is paramount, all of our actions, all of our attitudes would be based upon seeking the kingdom of God first. Not upon seeking our kingdom, but upon seeking your kingdom. We know, Lord, that we will incur wrath and persecution. You said that's just part of the package. Help us, Father, in the days ahead as the sympathies of the world are weakening and antagonism is starting to be felt on more fronts, I pray, Father, that rather than retreating from the world, as Jesus said, we're to be in it, not of it. He prayed that you wouldn't take us out of it, that you'd keep us in the midst of it, and that we would penetrate and permeate this culture with the gospel. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for our time. Equip us for your task in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.